Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 233 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about what may be Lee Harvey Oswald's mysterious, unknown, first assassination. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Lee Harvey Oswald was blamed for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The Warren Commission concluded that he acted alone and was the lone gunman. That's a conclusion that's been controversial ever since. What few people know is that, regardless of what happened with President Kennedy, Oswald may have made an earlier assassination attempt on another prominent figure in public life. So who was this figure? Did Oswald really try to kill him? And why would he have done so? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, Shots rang out in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. President John F. Kennedy and his glamorous wife Jacqueline were passing by in a motorcade, and the president was struck and fatally injured. In the aftermath, a man named Lee Harvey Oswald was captured. But before he could be brought to trial, he himself was assassinated, live on television, by a man named Jack Ruby. The new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, convened a special commission to investigate the incident. And it was headed by Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, leading it to be known as the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission concluded that there was no conspiracy involved in the former president's death. Instead, JFK was killed by a single gunman who was acting alone. And the man who pulled the trigger was Lee Harvey Oswald. So, Jimmy, why did you want to do this episode? We first covered the Kennedy assassination way back in episode 15 of Mysterious World, and I've read many books about the JFK assassination. In fact, it's something I've developed a a minor expertise on, and I've made a special trip to the site where it took place and seen it for myself. So I've I've been where the president was shot. I've been up on the in, in the book depository and seen the sniper's nest and so forth. I've made a point of reading about the event from multiple perspectives, and there are many conflicting claims concerning it. I've sought to consider them all with an open mind and follow the evidence where it goes. And in episode 15, we presented my current overall conclusion, which was this. The evidence is such that you are not crazy or stupid if you think Lee Harvey Oswald was involved in the assassination. And you are not crazy or stupid if you think that there was a conspiracy. And you are not crazy or stupid if you think Lee Harvey Oswald was what he said he was, just a patsy with no actual involvement. All of those positions have evidence to support them, and nobody should be dismissively looking down on anybody else because of their views, because there is significant evidence to support each view. The question is whether we can sift through the evidence and discover what actually happened. That's a project that I intended and still intend to pursue in future episodes. Originally, after episode 15 released in November of 2018, I had hoped to revisit the subject annually, you know, every November for 
the, at the time of the anniversary. Uh, each time, I hoped we would look at a new theory or a new aspect of the mystery. And for scheduling reasons, that hasn't happened, despite my efforts. But we are finally getting back to the subject today. And so I want to look at an earlier report involving Lee Harvey Oswald. And this report can shed light on what may have happened during the Kennedy assassination. This episode involves an assassination attempt. So will it be covering anything particularly sensitive that listeners ought to be aware of? Not really. We always keep things clinical on Mysterious World, and we don't go into disturbing details. And in today's mystery, that's certainly true. Nobody gets killed. Nothing gruesome happens. So listeners or, or parents of children don't need to worry unless they're so sensitive that they can't stand hearing about the possibility of a death. Let's start by talking about Lee Harvey Oswald. What should we know about him? Lee Harvey Oswald was a tragic figure who led a tragic life. He was born in 1939 in New Orleans, Louisiana, and he died just two days after the Kennedy assassination in 1963 when Lee was 24. He had a really rough life growing up. His father died two months before he was born, and his mother, Marguerite Oswald, was a strange, rigid, self-absorbed woman who did not show Lee affection. They had an unstable home life, and Lee never got a high school diploma. And to illustrate how unstable their home life was, by the time Oswald quit school, he had lived in 22 different residences and attended 12 different schools. So they moved around quite a lot. Between that and his weird, unloving mother, did Lee have any disciplinary problems? Yes. For a time, they were living in the Bronx and in New York, and the local authorities were concerned about Lee and had a court place him in a youth home for psychiatric evaluation. They were considering removing him from the care of his mother in order to help him. But Marguerite took him, left the state without permission, and went back to New Orleans. Lee quit school at the age of 16 to join the Marine Corps, and his older brother Robert later acknowledged that this was Lee's way of getting out from under the domination of his mother. He preferred joining the Marine Corps as preferable to being under the domination of his mother. <laughs> Marine Corps is pretty strict, is my point. <laughs> right. After this troubling early life, did he do better once he joined the Marine Corps? Not really. There were a series of disciplinary problems, and Oswald was court-martialed more than once. Wikipedia explains, Oswald was court-martialed after he accidentally shot himself in the elbow with an unauthorized twenty-two caliber handgun. He was court-martialed a second time for fighting with a sergeant who he thought was responsible for his punishment in the shooting matter. He was demoted from private first class to private and briefly imprisoned. Oswald was later punished for a third incident. While he was on a nighttime sentry duty in the Philippines, he inexplicably fired his rifle into the jungle. He also was getting a reputation as a supporter of communism. Oswald had been nicknamed Ozzy Rabbit after the cartoon character Oswald the Rabbit, who had been created by Walt Disney and was a basis for the later Mickey Mouse. You can even see how much Oswald looks like a version of Mickey, only he has longer ears because he's a rabbit. Lee Harvey Oswald also gained another nickname, though. He kept advocating Marxist ideas to his fellow Marines, which was not a very popular thing to do in the American Armed Forces in the late 1950s during the McCarthy era. And his fellow soldiers thought he was weird. 
They decided to give him a Russian-sounding nickname, so they started calling him Oswaldskovich. With his ongoing problems in the services, did Oswald stay in the Marine Corps long? No, just three years later, at age 19, he got out of the Corps. His hitch was not up, but he applied for a hardship discharge, claiming that his mother needed care. Only, that seems rather doubtful, because just nine days after his discharge, he left the country and traveled to Russia. Once there, he defected to the Soviet Union, said he was a communist, and said he wanted to be a Soviet citizen. The Soviets originally weren't keen on this, but they let him stay temporarily, and when they were getting ready to escort him out of the country, he slashed his left wrist in an apparent suicide attempt. In the wake of his self-inflicted wound, they let him stay longer and put him under psychiatric evaluation. The story of Oswald's time in Russia is quite interesting. I'd love to go into it in more detail in the future. There are a considerable number of questions about it, and what were some of them? Well, for a start, was Oswald an American spy who was sent to penetrate the Soviet Union? Was he a sincere communist who went there, became a Russian spy, and returned to the United States? Was he a double agent, working in some capacity for both sides, or was he just a lonely loser who thought life would be better in Russia, got disillusioned once he saw the reality, and decided to come back without working for either side? In any event, in 1961, while he was still there, Oswald met a Russian woman named Marina, and they had a whirlwind romance because they were married just six weeks after they met. Their first child, a baby girl named June, was born in February of 1962 when Lee was 22 years old, and four months later, Lee, Marina, and baby June returned to the United States and settled in Dallas, Texas. At this point, we need to introduce the second major figure in today's mystery. Who was he? His name was Edwin Walker. He was born in 1909 in the Hill Country in Kerr County of Central Texas, and he was 52 years old at the time that Lee Harvey Oswald came back to the United States and moved to Dallas. Walker would eventually die more than 30 years later, in 1993, at the age of 83. For his career, Walker joined the United States Army, which he served in for 30 years, from 1931 to 1961. He ultimately rose to the rank of Major General. In the U.S., general is the highest rank you can achieve, but there are different kinds of generals, with the highest being a five-star general. That rank is rare, and there often aren't any five-star generals at all. In fact, only nine Americans have ever held that rank, the last living one, the last living five-star general being Omar Bradley, who died back in 1981. Edwin Walker was a major general, which meant he was a two-star general, and so he was quite high in the military hierarchy. But to borrow a phrase from Gilbert and Sullivan, he was not the very model of a modern major general. I am the very model of a modern major general. Life information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and I quote the... In fact, he had some rather antiquated views, as we'll discuss, and like Lee Harvey Oswald, he was a troubled man with a troubled career. Before we get to his troubles, if he rose to the rank of two-star general, he must have done something right. What were some of his successes in his career? Well, he graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1931, but there wasn't a major war on at the time. 
In the 1940s, he served during World War II, and in the 1950s, he served during the Korean War. He earned a variety of decorations, including the Silver Star. Uh, He also earned the Merit of Legion twice and the Bronze Star Medal twice. It was after the Korean War, which ended in 1953, that his troubles really started. How'd that happen? Well, by the late 1950s, the U.S. Civil Rights Movement had begun, and it advocated equal rights for black and white Americans. Prior to the 1950s, it was common in the southern United States for public schools to be racially segregated. That meant that white students would go to one school while black students would go to another. In a decision given in 1896 called Plessy v. Ferguson, the United States Supreme Court had ruled that it was okay for states to segregate schools by race if the schools were separate but equal. Separate meant that they were segregated by race, but equal meant that they were supposed to provide equal educational benefits to the students. The problem was the schools really weren't equal. The black schools weren't providing as good an education as the white ones. And in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court, under Chief Justice Earl Warren, essentially reversed Plessy versus Ferguson. In a new decision called Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka in Kansas, they required the integration of black and white schools so that everyone would receive an equal education. The court ruled that, quote, separate educational facilities are inherently unequal, close quote. And they held that that was a violation of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which said that, quote, no state shall deprive any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, close quote. And that caused a huge controversy. Yes, because white racists didn't want their children going to school with black children. An early test case of the new ruling occurred in 1957 when an effort was made to integrate Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas. In 1957, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, attempted to enroll nine black students, known as the Little Rock Nine, in the previously all-white school. The superintendent of schools agreed and drew up integration plans. But when the school year began, the governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, stationed the Arkansas National Guard outside the school to keep the black students from entering. He claimed that this was a defensive measure to preserve the peace and stop angry segregationists from starting a riot. And there were angry segregationists on hand protesting and getting rowdy. But the press photos of the Arkansas National Guard standing between innocent black schoolgirls and the school caused an uproar in the press. So the Little Rock School Board condemned the governor's actions. The school board wanted the students admitted, and they called for a citywide prayer meeting. This was before the Supreme Court's 1962 and 1963 decisions banning school prayer. So having a school board calling for prayer was not unexpected at the time. How was the situation resolved? President Dwight D. Eisenhower got involved. He invoked the Insurrection Act of 1807 to allow the U.S. Armed Forces to be deployed for a domestic law enforcement situation. Normally, this isn't allowed because military functions and law enforcement are two different things, and you don't want your military turned against your own citizens because that's bad in all kinds of ways. But U.S. law allows for limited exceptions. 
Having invoked the Insurrection Act, President Eisenhower did two things. One was he assumed federal control of the Arkansas National Guard, taking it out of Governor Faubus's hands. The other was that he decided to deploy the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock. And that's where Edwin Walker re-enters our story, because he was assigned to the 101st Army Airborne. And General Walker enforced the desegregation order. As U.S. Attorney for Eastern District of Arkansas, Osro Cobb later recalled, Walker made it clear from the outset that he would do any and everything necessary to see that the black students attended Central High School as ordered by the federal court. He would arrange protection for them and their families if necessary and also supervise their transportation to and from the school for their safety. And so Little Rock Central High School was integrated. But Walker was conflicted about this. He told President Eisenhower that he didn't like using federal troops to do this, which may have been on the principle that you don't want to turn your military against your citizens. But he also began listening to a couple of popular radio figures in the day, Billy James Hargis and H.L. Hunt, both of whom were on more than 500 radio stations at their peak. Hargis was a fiery evangelist from the Disciples of Christ, and Hunt was an oil billionaire. Both were very anti-communist, and both were segregationists. They also both were members of the John Birch Society, a conservative organization that was viewed by many as extreme. For example, the Birchers claimed that Presidents Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower were all communist agents. Two years later, in 1959, General Walker tried to do something rather unprecedented. He tried to resign his military commission during his tour of duty, something no other general had done in the 20th century. What was going on? In 1959, General Walker joined the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society believed that there was an effort on behalf of the Soviet Union to infiltrate the U.S. government, which was quite true, as later disclosures have revealed. And they saw a lot of things as evidence for international communist conspiracies, not all of which were necessarily true. But General Walker was convinced that there was a conspiracy that, in his word, nullified the effectiveness of my ideas and principles. So he submitted his letter of resignation to President Eisenhower. How did Eisenhower react? Having a two-star general resign during his tour of duty, making charges of an international conspiracy interfering with him carrying out his duties, would have caused a bunch of problems. So instead of accepting the resignation, Eisenhower offered him a different command, and Walker ended up taking command of 10,000 troops in the Army's 24th Infantry Division in Augsburg, West Germany. But two years later, in 1961, he got into a new controversy. Time Magazine explains, Walker was accused by the Overseas Weekly, an independent American-owned newspaper, of indoctrinating his troops with the far-right tenets of the John Birch Society. In addition, the paper charged that Walker had once publicly stated that former President Harry Truman was definitely pink, meaning communist or sympathetic to communism, and had pinned the leftist label on Mrs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that is, Eleanor Roosevelt, the former first lady, as well as former Secretary of State Dean Acheson and U.N. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson. In the furor that followed the Overseas Weekly article, the Army relieved Walker of his command. An Army investigation found that Walker had violated regulations 
by trying to influence the votes of his men and had taken part in controversial activities which were beyond the prerogatives of a senior military commander. Thus, the army lost the services of a rugged, experienced fighting man in a critical Cold War spot. During World War II, Walker led the elite Special Service Force through Italy, France, and Germany. In Korea, he commanded the artillery at Heartbreak Hill. When he resigned from the Army last week, Walker was under orders to report to Hawaii as Assistant Chief of Staff for Training and Operations in the Pacific, a responsible job which proved that the Army still wanted to make use of his talents. Since Walker's case flared into the headlines, the question of whether or not military officers should be allowed to make political speeches has become one of the hottest potatoes in Washington. On one side are Defense Secretary Robert McNamara and Arkansas Senator J.W. Fulbright, who argue that military leaders should only take nonpartisan stands in public. On the other side are South Carolina's Democratic Senator Strom Thurmond and Arizona's Republican Senator Barry Goldwater, who accuse McNamara and Fulbright of trying to gag officers of the armed forces, especially any who are to the right of the administration. Explaining his reasons for quitting the Army, Walker said, My career has been destroyed. I must find other means of serving my country in the time of her great need. To do this, I must be free from the power of the little men who, in the name of my country, punish loyal service to it. Concluded Edwin Walker, It will be my purpose now, as a civilian, to attempt to do what I have found it no longer possible to do in uniform. I should point out that in a country where the government shifts between different political parties, you really don't want the military becoming too wedded to either or any of them. If that happens, then they may come to regard one party as the enemy of the nation and either refuse to obey orders of the civilian government or possibly even stage a coup against it, like in many nations that have been ruled by military juntas. And so the United States military is traditionally nonpartisan. They haven't wanted military leaders to politicize their troops, telling them how to vote or intervening in political matters in the public square. But General Walker felt that the situation with the struggle against communism was serious enough that he needed to speak out, and so he resigned and became a civilian. In December of 1961, he began making political speeches with Billy James Hargis, the Disciples of Christ radio evangelist, and he even made the cover of Newsweek. In 1962, with the help of oilman H.L. Hunt, he began running for governor of Texas. At the time, Texas was a solidly Democratic state. Uh, Texas had not had a Republican governor since the Reconstruction era in 1874, and so you had to be a Democrat to win the office of governor. That meant you had to win the party's nomination for the office, which was the only really competitive race. But in the primary, Walker ended up coming in last out of six candidates, getting only 10% of the vote. The man who eventually became governor was John Connolly, and Connolly was riding with President Kennedy in the same car in the motorcade when the Kennedy assassination occurred in 1963. In fact, Connolly himself was struck by one of the bullets. So if Walker had won, he could have been riding alongside Kennedy instead of Connolly, which is pretty weird to think about. Did anything unusual happen during his campaign for governor? He punched a reporter. <laughs> There's a common tactic that you sometimes see reporters use in elections, which is to try to embarrass a candidate by 
asking what the candidate thinks about an unwanted endorsement. In any election, somebody with a really terrible reputation as a despicable weirdo will inevitably endorse a candidate when the candidate didn't want or ask for the endorsement and doesn't want to be associated with the despicable weirdo in any way. Reporters will then use a sleazy gotcha tactic of asking the candidate what he thinks about the despicable weirdo's endorsement. At a minimum, that gets the candidate's name and the weirdo's name associated in the press and in the public mind, tarring the reputation of the candidate and making it sound like they may be on the same side. Even if the candidate vigorously denounces the despicable weirdo, the damage has been done because some people will think, he's just saying that, and look at the horrible people saying nice things about him. Well, in 1962, George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the American Nazi Party, praised General Walker, saying he was a great American. General Walker didn't like Nazis. He had fought them in World War II. In fact, he was quite eager to fight Nazis. As David Talbot explains in his book, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, he volunteered to lead a paratroopers unit against the Nazis without ever having jumped from a plane. How do you put this thing on? A puzzled walker asked a subordinate as his plane lifted off the ground for his first jump. So when reporter Thomas V. Kelly asked General Walker what he thought about the founder of the American Nazi Party saying he was a great American, Walker socked him in the eye. As you do. As you do. In September of 1962, Walker became embroiled in another school integration incident. What happened this time? This time, the controversy was in the state of Mississippi, where a student named James Meredith was enrolling at the University of Mississippi. Meredith was an African-American and an Air Force veteran, but because the school had previously been all white, it was causing a huge uproar because racism. Now a civilian, Walker decided to throw his support behind the protesters, and he went to Mississippi and was present during a 15-hour riot at the university. At the White House in Washington, this situation was being carefully monitored by the new president, John F. Kennedy, and his brother, the Attorney General, Robert F. Kennedy. They were trying to get the Army onto the campus to take charge of things and settle them down, and we know exactly what they were saying because Kennedy had a secret taping system in the White House, as we heard about in Episodes 213 and 214 on the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it wasn't just Nixon who had secret tapes. It was also Kennedy and Johnson. The tapes of that night reveal that things weren't happening in Mississippi as fast as they wanted, and the Kennedy brothers were getting angrier and angrier. And when they heard that General Walker was there, David Talbot reports, Their anger grew when mad-eyed, beetle-browed General Edwin Walker, recently forced into retirement, suddenly appeared in the college town, dressed in a natty black suit and his trademark gray Stetson, and showed up later at a Confederate monument on campus, where he rallied the ragtag army of race haters. And it boiled over as army officials offered a series of excuses for why their troops were moving so slowly to prevent the lynching of James Meredith and the slaughter of his federal guard. The question that comes searingly through these presidential transcripts is, why is the military being so unresponsive to the commander-in-chief? General Walker's been out downtown getting people stirred up, Bobby Kennedy told the cabinet room group at one point. Well, let's see if we can arrest him. 
he said over the phone, connecting him to Oxford, Mississippi. Will you tell the FBI that we need an arrest warrant? Mention of the mutinous retired general prompted a strong reaction from the president. General Walker, JFK said disgustedly to the room. Imagine that son of a blank having been commander of a division up till last year. The morning after the riot, Walker was arrested by federal marshals and flown to a Missouri psychiatric prison where he was to undergo examination before standing charges on insurrection. The New York Times observed that committing the general to a mental hospital was regarded as unusual. But Bobby Kennedy was in no mood for judicial restraint. Robert Kennedy ordered that Walker be subject to a 90-day psychiatric evaluation, but people protested this action. The famous psychiatrist Thomas Saz argued that psychiatry must never be used as a political tool to silence political dissidents, which is a really good point because that's exactly what was happening in communist countries, where political dissidents were being classified as mentally ill and then confined to psychiatric hospitals for treatment. Also, the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, came to Walker's defense. This was back when the ACLU was less nakedly partisan than it is today, and it was still willing to defend unpopular causes regardless of which side of the political spectrum they came from. No charges were filed against Walker because the basis of the charges was apparently an erroneous story issued by the Associated Press, who General Walker sued for libel. And in any event, the result was that General Walker was released from the mental facility only a few days later. This event happened in September of 1962, which brings us close to the beginning of 1963. What happened with General Walker in that year? In February 1963, he participated in a speaking tour with Billy James Hargis called Operation Midnight Ride, in which they warned people about the threat of communism. And on March 5th, he gave a speech in which he called for the U.S. to liquidate the communist scourge that has descended upon the island of Cuba. Cuba had only recently become communist, and it had been the scene of the Bay of Pigs disaster in April of 1961, which we will talk about in a future episode, and also the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. But the communist Castro regime in Cuba was still new and potentially unstable, and General Walker called for its overthrow. Which brings us back to Lee Harvey Oswald. Seven days after General Walker's speech in March 1963, Oswald ordered a Manlicher Carcano rifle by mail order using the false name A. Heidel. What happened next? At 9 p.m. on the evening of April 10th, General Walker was sitting in the back of his house preparing his taxes for the April 15th deadline, as you do. And suddenly, a shot rang out. As the general explained the next day, April 11th... General, will you describe for us just what happened last night? Well, the police from the city came in to investigate a rifle shot that was fired into the house, fired through the west window and hit the cell and hit the wall across the room and went through the wall over the desk at which I was sitting. This happened at 9 o'clock at last. Well, there's an enemy within this country, and of course it's the same enemy that uh, represents the position that we should do away with the House Un-American Activities Committee 
that we should destroy our local police forces and that we should uh, do away with our military forces. These are the, uh, you might say, the anti-Americans as far as our traditions, heritage, and constitution are concerned. And there are plenty of them in this country, in spite of the federal government's position, that there is no uh, threat from within. There is a threat from within, and this uh, is just further indications that uh, there is a threat to our individual rights and liberties. What do you propose to do now? Are you going to go out uh, making out your tax reforms at that same desk or doing work in your house as usual? The House will continue as usual. There will be no change, except that we'll uh, double our efforts in every area. So General Walker reported that he was sitting at his desk at 9 p.m. when a shot came through his west window, which was at the back of the house. The shot struck the windowsill, but part of the bullet went through the wall opposite him. Although he doesn't mention it in the interview, General Walker himself was injured in his forearm by fragments of the bullet. He was defiant, saying that this would not affect the operations of his household beyond him being more vigilant, and he suggested that the attack was due to an enemy within this country, which he suggested was the same enemy that represents the position that we should do away with the House Un-American Activities Committee, meaning the committee in the U.S. House of Representatives that was investigating communist activities in America. And he saw this attempt on his life as being due to a communist or a communist sympathizing enemy. Also, notice he talked about this internal enemy in America wanting to abolish the police force, somewhat similar to the defund the police movement that's been discussed in recent years. The Dallas police investigated this shooting from April of 1963, but they didn't find the person or persons responsible. And in early December of 1963, a new development in the case occurred. Two weeks after President Kennedy was killed, this was reported. Through statements attributed to Lee Oswald's wife, who was still in seclusion, being questioned further by federal authorities. She's reported to have told them that one night last April, Oswald returned home and boasted that he had shot at Walker. There was such a shooting last April. That much is fact. Here is a police officer that night who rushed to Walker's home. He's examining the hole made in a window frame of Walker's second floor study. The general was sitting at his desk making out his income tax return. The bullet missed his head by inches, bore through a nine-inch wall, and settled in the adjoining room. Walker was spattered by wood and glass splinters, but not seriously hurt. Police here searching the yard the following morning determined the bullet came from a high-powered rifle not more than 75 yards away. So Lee Harvey Oswald's widow, Marina Oswald, told investigators that her husband had tried to kill General Walker. This opened up a whole new line of investigation. Was Oswald responsible for the attempt to kill General Walker? And that brings us to today's mystery. Was General Walker Lee Harvey Oswald's first assassination attempt? And we'll get to our theories and faith and reason perspective in a second. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Matthew G., Bob M., Matthew P., Paul B., and Dan S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy, what theories are there about the possibility that Lee Harvey Oswald tried to assassinate General Walker? There are several questions we need to consider. What evidence do we have about who tried to kill General Walker? Was Lee Harvey Oswald involved? What might that tell us about the JFK assassination? And if he did try to kill General Walker, why would he do this? All right, let's start with the faith perspective. What can we say about the attempted assassination of General Walker from the faith perspective? Not a huge amount. Obviously, murder bad. Uh, Trying to murder someone is wrong. So whoever tried to kill General Walker was doing something evil. Also, racism bad. God doesn't care about your skin color any more than he does your hair color or eye color. And it's fundamentally wrong to judge people by frivolous cosmetic characteristics like that. What about the issue of segregation? Some people might say that they don't judge people of other races. They just think they shouldn't mix with each other. What would you say to that? Jesus Christ preached an ethic of universal love, love for everyone, regardless of who they are. And I'm a big believer in that. Loving people means being willing to mix with them. So the idea of people of a different group should be separated from other groups is fundamentally disordered. Everyone should love each other and be happy to associate with each other. Now, I don't have a problem if a group of people want to go informally, you know, and get together on the basis of a common interest, like if a group of men want to have a boys' night out or if a group of women want to have a girls' night out. I also don't have a problem if a bunch of friends who just happen to have the same ethnicity, what whatever ethnicity that is, want to get together, you know, like a group of African-American friends or a group of Asian friends or a group of Caucasian friends. But if you draw lines and say, you're different than we are, you must leave, get out of here, then I have a big problem with it. That's contrary to the universal love preached by Jesus, which holds that we ought to love and thus be willing to get together with people from any group. If it's an informal get-together that nobody is excluded from, and it just so happens everybody is similar in some way, well, fine. But if you're pushing people out and saying you're not welcome here because of some characteristic, that is wrong. What about in cases where people are extremely hostile toward each other? Are there cases where people should just be separated for the sake of safety? I have a friend from Ireland, which has been deeply divided between Protestant and Catholic people, and he told me about Irish people who believed that if they went into certain areas where the other group lived, especially at times of high tension, that they'd have simply been killed. So they needed not to mix. But that's a damaged, broken situation. Whatever personal safety may dictate in the short term, it needs to be fixed in the long term. And that means starting to let down the barriers, healing wounds, and growing in love and forgiveness. Those things won't happen if you put up barriers and foster hostility towards other groups. That's one of the things that concerns me about current trends in American colleges, where 
creating so-called safe spaces where only people with certain characteristics are allowed is happening, and anyone who doesn't have those characteristics is forbidden to be there. What that will do is cause people to think of these characteristics as important, and that those who don't have them are the enemy, and that will foster growing division and hostility. It is not the way forward. People may not realize it, but it's a form of voluntary resegregation, and it will lead to the same kind of problems that the original segregation did. In fact, segregation has been a problem at many points in human history. If you go back to ancient Alexandria, for example, there was an Egyptian part of the city and a Greek part and a Jewish part, and there were periodic riots due to ethnic tensions between the different groups. And the same has been true in a lot of cities in history. And keeping people permanently apart is never the solution. It's getting them mixing and interacting and building bridges so that they become one people. In other words, a melting pot where people can retain and be proud of their heritage, but they also have a new common identity as one people that works together. Didn't the church have that situation in the first century when Jewish and Gentile Christians started mixing? Absolutely. This was one of the first things the Christian church had to deal with. There were originally Christians who were Jewish, and some thought that if you wanted to become a Christian, you needed to become circumcised and become a Jew. But that wasn't God's plan, and he had St. Peter baptize one of the first groups of Gentiles to make that point. He also directed that they hold the first church council to hammer that point home. But there were still practical questions that had to be faced. Like in Galatians 2, Paul tells us that when St. Peter first came to the city of Antioch, he had no problem mixing with and eating with Gentile Christians. But when certain Jewish Christians arrived, he drew back and started eating only with Jews. Now, Peter was the head of the church, its highest leader, and so that's the equivalent of the U.S. president sitting down at an integrated lunch counter and then switching and going to the whites-only lunch counter instead. I mean, imagine what kind of message that would send if the Pope's doing that. So St. Paul certainly thought about that message and what it was saying to Gentile Christians, and he vigorously objected to Peter's face. Peter may have tried defending himself by saying, you know, look, I'm just trying to keep the peace between the two groups. But St. Paul was convinced that this was wrong and that it undermined the unity of Christians. No, we don't have to give up our heritage as Jews or Greeks, but now we are one people and we must love each other the way Christ wants us to. That means not maintaining ridiculous barriers that will only foster hostility. Whatever hostilities may have been in the past, we need to love and forgive each other the way Christ loves and forgives us. Now let's turn to the reason perspective. What evidence do we have about who tried to kill General Walker? After the assassination of President Kennedy, his successor, Lyndon Johnson, appointed a commission of high-ranking individuals to investigate the matter. It was headed by Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and so it became known as the Warren Commission. During the course of its investigation, the Warren Commission looked at the attempted assassination of General Walker, and it summarized the evidence this way. At approximately 9 p.m. on April 10, 1963, in Dallas, Texas, Major General Edwin A. Walker, an active and controversial figure on the American political scene since his resignation from the U.S. Army in 1961, 
narrowly escaped death when a rifle bullet fired from outside his home passed near his head as he was seated at his desk. There were no eyewitnesses, although a 14-year-old boy in a neighboring house claimed that immediately after the shooting, he saw two men in separate cars drive out of a church parking lot adjacent to Walker's home. A friend of Walker's testified that two nights before the shooting, he saw two men around the house peeking in windows. General Walker gave this information to the police before the shooting, but it did not help solve the crime. Although the bullet was recovered from Walker's house, in the absence of a weapon, it was of little investigatory value. General Walker hired two investigators to determine whether a former employee might have been involved in the shooting. Their results were negative. The Walker shooting remained unsolved. So, two nights before the shooting, a friend of Walker's said he saw two men peeking in the windows of his house, and Walker immediately gave this information to the police, but nothing came of it. Then, on the night of the shooting, a 14-year-old neighbor saw two men, in two separate cars, drive out of the parking lot of the church by Walker's house. The police couldn't determine much from the bullet that had been fired, in part because it was fragmented, making the ballistics testing harder and they didn't have a gun to match it with. The private investigators that Walker hired checked to see if a disgruntled employee might be involved, but they didn't find any evidence of that. Based on all this, it would sound like two men were involved in the plot to kill Walker. That's not a certainty, because the two men that the friend and the 14-year-old neighbor saw may not have been connected with the assassination attempt, but it's a possibility that needs to be considered. If there were two men, was Lee Harvey Oswald involved? What's the evidence that connects him to the case? The Warren Commission cited four pieces of evidence. One, a note which Oswald left for his wife on the evening of the shooting. Two, photographs found among Oswald's possessions after the assassination of President Kennedy. Three, firearm identification of the bullet found in Walker's home. And four, admissions and other statements made to Marina Oswald by Oswald concerning the shooting. We'll take a look at each of the four pieces of evidence, starting with the note. The Oswalds had an American friend named Ruth Payne, and Marina Oswald was staying with her at the time of the Kennedy assassination. She also had some of Lee's things in her house. On December 2nd, 10 days after the assassination, Ruth Payne gave some of Lee's belongings to the police. Inside of a book, they found a note that Lee had written for Marina in Russian. When they translated it, they found that the note said this. This is the key to the mailbox, which is located in the main post office in the city on Irve Street. This is the same street where the drugstore, in which you always waited, is located. You will find the mailbox in the post office, which is located four blocks from the drugstore on that street. I paid for the box last month, so don't worry about it. Send the information as to what has happened to me to the embassy and include newspaper clippings, should there be anything about me in the newspapers. I believe that the embassy will come quickly to your assistance on learning everything. I paid the house rent on the second, so don't worry about it. Recently, I also paid for water and gas. The money from work will possibly be coming. The money will be sent to our post office box. Go to the bank and cash the check. You can either throw out or give my clothing, etc. away. Do not keep these. However, I prefer that you hold on to my personal papers, military, civil, etc. Certain of my documents are in the small blue valise. 
The address book can be found on my table in the study should you need it. We have friends here. The Red Cross also will help you. I left you as much money as I could, $60 on the second of the month. You and the baby can live for another two months using $10 per week. If I am alive and taken prisoner, the city jail is located at the end of the bridge through which we always passed on going to the city, right in the beginning of the city after crossing the bridge. A handwriting expert testified that this note was written in Lee's penmanship, and it suggested that Lee was planning some kind of momentous event that could get him killed or arrested. He's thus giving Marina instructions for what to do and how to survive in the wake of that. He also expects that in the aftermath of the event, his name may appear in the papers, and he says to send information about what happened to him, including any newspaper clippings, to the embassy. Since Marina was a Russian national, that would be the Russian embassy, and he expects that the Russian embassy may provide assistance for her, which would be natural since she's a Russian national. So he wrote this note before some kind of mission that he suspected he might not be coming back from. Could it have been the Kennedy assassination that had taken place 10 days earlier? No, for several reasons. Uh, first, various references in the note fit a particular point in Oswald's life. The Warren Commission explains, The references to house rent and payments for water and gas indicated that the note was written when they were living in a rented apartment. Therefore, it could not have been written while Marina Oswald was living with the Paines. Moreover, the reference in paragraph 3 to paying the house rent on the 2nd would be consistent with the period when the Oswalds were living on Neely Street since the apartment was rented on March 3, 1963. Oswald had paid the first month rent in advance on March 2, 1963, and the second month's rent was paid on either April 2nd or April 3rd. The main post office on Irve Street refers to the post office where Oswald rented Box 2915 from October 9, 1962 to May 14, 1963. The references thus place the writing of the note between March 3rd when they moved into the rented house on Neely Street and May 14th when Lee's P.O. Box lapsed several months before the assassination of JFK. We can narrow down the range further because he says he paid the rent on the 2nd, which is consistent with the month of April, but not the previous month of March. That suggests that the note was written in early April, just before the Walker shooting. Also, in the note, he tells Marina, you and the baby can live for another two months using $10 a week. But in November of 1962, when the JFK assassination happened, they had two babies. June Oswald, who was born the previous year when they were still in Russia and was 21 months old at the time, and also Audrey, their second daughter, who was born in Dallas on October 20th, so she was just one month old at the time of the Kennedy assassination. Since Lee says you and the baby, not you and the babies, he means you and June not you and June and new baby Audrey. That tells us that this note was written before Audrey was born, so before October. He also isn't sure whether his name will be in the papers or not after the crime he's planning to commit. While he could conceivably get away with either assassination and not be discovered, the odds of not getting caught 
for the Walker assassination would be a lot higher. And in fact, he did get away with the attempt on Walker's life, assuming he did it. He just vanished into the night. Whereas, guilty or not, he was quickly arrested in the manhunt that occurred after the Kennedy assassination. All of these factors suggest that he was not talking about the Kennedy assassination in the note, but a crime he was planning to commit in April. The Warren Commission also mentions photographs found among his possessions after the Kennedy assassination. What were those? They were photographs of General Walker's house. The Warren Commission concluded, Two of these photographs were taken from the rear of Walker's house. The commission confirmed, by comparison with other photographs, that these were indeed photographs of the rear of Walker's house. An examination of the window at the rear of the house, the wall through which the bullet passed, and the fence behind the house indicated that the bullet was fired from a position near the point where one of the photographs was taken. The third photograph depicts the entrance to General Walker's driveway from a back alley. Also seen in the picture is the fence on which Walker's assailant apparently rested the rifle. An examination of certain construction work appearing in the background of this photograph revealed that the picture was taken between March 8th and 12th, 1963, and most probably on either March 9th or March 10th. A photography expert with the FBI was able to determine that this picture was taken with the Imperial Reflex camera owned by Lee Harvey Oswald. So they linked these photographs of Walker's house to Oswald's camera, and based on construction work they could see going on in the background, they determined that they were taken in early March. So among Lee's possessions were found both the note from apparently early April, saying he was planning a major crime of some kind, and three photographs of General Walker's house were taken a month before that assassination attempt and were all also in his possessions. What did the Warren Commission find when they looked at the bullet that had been fired at General Walker? It was inconclusive because the bullet was too badly damaged. However, the experts they talked with testified that it was the kind of bullet that could have been fired from the Manlicher Carcano rifle that Oswald had ordered that there were only relatively few other types of firearms that could have been used to fire it, that some of what they saw on the bullet was consistent with it being fired from his rifle, and that there was nothing inconsistent with it having been fired from Oswald's Manlicher Carcano. One expert from the FBI refused to say it was probably fired from that gun because the FBI had a policy of not making probability findings in ballistics. If they didn't consider it a certain match, they wouldn't assign probabilities. But another expert said that it was his judgment that it was probably fired from Oswald's rifle. He just couldn't say it was definitively fired from it to the exclusion of all other rifles. But there's a bit more to this part of the story, because in the 1970s, the U.S. House of Representatives convened a select committee to look at the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King, whose assassination we'll be looking at in the future. And unlike the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that there probably was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. So you have these two different government commissions, the Warren Commission and the House Commission. One of them says there was no conspiracy a a little more than a decade later. The other one says, yes, there was. But one of the experts, For the House committee, Dr. Vincent P. Gwynn 
agreed that the Walker bullet and the Kennedy bullets were all Western Cartridge Company Mannlicher Carcano bullets. He used neutron activation analysis to determine the ratio of elements that were in them, like lead, antimony, and silver. And here's part of his testimony before the House. Mr. Wolf, in your professional opinion, Dr. Gwynn, is the fragment removed from General Walker's house a fragment from a Western Cartridge Company Manlicker Carcano bullet? Dr. Gwynn. I would say that it is extremely likely that it is because there are very few, very few other ammunitions that would be in this range. I don't know of any that are specifically this close as the numbers indicate, but somewhere near them, there are a few others. But essentially, this is in the range that is rather characteristic of Western Cartridge Company Mandlicker Carcano bullet lead. Mr. Wolf. Dr. Gwynn, based on these results, do you have an opinion as to what type of bullet these fragments were from? Dr. Gwynn, once again, every one of these samples is in the same range, which is an unusual range as the background WCC Manlicher Carcano samples that we have looked at from all four production lots. These five fall in the mid-range, in fact. They are not the highest, they are not the lowest of the antimony range, and the same is true of the silver. Mr. Wolf, is it your opinion then that these are all are fragments from WCC Manlicher Carcano bullets? Dr. Gwynn, I think this is their most likely origin, yes. And so, no matter what you think of the Warren Commission and the job it did, we have additional testimony indicating that the Walker bullet and the Kennedy bullets were very probably Western Cartridge Company Mannlicher Carcano bullets. The Warren Commission also cited statements from Marina Oswald linking her husband to the Walker assassination attempt. What did she tell them? She said Lee was involved. The Warren Commission summarizes, Prior to the Walker shooting on April 10th, Oswald had been attending typing classes on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday evenings. He had quit these classes at least a week before the shooting, which occurred on a Wednesday night. According to Marina Oswald's testimony on the night of the Walker shooting, her husband left their apartment on Neely Street shortly after dinner. She thought he was attending a class or was on his own business. When he failed to return by 10 or 10.30 p.m., Marina Oswald went to his room and discovered the note. She testified, When he came back, I asked him what had happened. He was very pale. I don't remember the exact time, but it was very late, and he told me not to ask him any questions. He only told me he had shot at General Walker. Oswald told his wife that he did not know whether he had hit Walker. According to Marina Oswald, when he learned on the radio and in the newspapers the next day that he had missed, he said that he was very sorry that he had not hit him. Marina also said that Lee had told her he'd been planning the Walker shooting for two months, meaning since February. And that would be consistent with the photos he took of Walker's house in the first part of March. He showed her a notebook three days later containing photographs of General Walker's home and a map of the area where the house was located. Although Oswald destroyed the notebook, three photographs found among Oswald's possessions after the assassination were identified by Marina Oswald as photographs of General Walker's house. And experts confirmed that they were of Walker's house and even identified a small range of dates when they were taken. They also found a couple of extra photos of train tracks that were between half a mile 
and a mile of Walker's house. And Marina Oswald stated that when she asked her husband what he had done with the rifle, he replied that he had buried it in the ground or hidden it in some bushes, and that he also mentioned a railroad track in this connection. She testified that several days later, Oswald recovered his rifle and brought it back to their apartment. So Lee apparently hid the rifle so that if the police linked him to the Walker shooting, the rifle wouldn't be found with him. He took the two train track photos to help him identify the spot where he stashed it. And then once he realized that Walker hadn't died and he wasn't likely to get caught, he went back and retrieved it. So between the note that was written in April revealing that he was planning a dramatic crime that could get him killed or imprisoned, the fact that multiple photographs of Walker's house dating from March were found among Lee's possessions and had been taken by his camera, the probability that the Walker bullet came from Lee's Manlikirk Arcano rifle and could not have come from very many other types of guns, and Marina's testimony that he had admitted his involvement to her and that she had seen the photos in April, all that gives us a strong likelihood that Lee was involved in the Walker shooting. And what might that tell us about the JFK assassination? Well, for a start, it would tell us that Oswald was both willing to kill and that he was willing to kill public figures that he didn't like, and that would be consistent with him shooting at Kennedy. Also, if the experts were right and the Walker bullet and the Kennedy bullets were produced by the same manufacturer and likely were fired by the same gun, that would be consistent with Oswald having involvement in the Kennedy shooting. It wouldn't prove that he shot Kennedy, much less that he was a lone gunman, but it would suggest that he had involvement and was not just the patsy he later claimed to be, or at least it would suggest somebody was using his rifle to shoot at Kennedy. We've been relying on evidence that was gathered by the Warren Commission. A lot of people are suspicious of the Warren Commission and its conclusions about the JFK assassination. What do you think of that? I'm very open to criticisms of the Warren Commission, and we're likely to discuss them in detail in a future episode. In particular, I think it's quite plausible that the Warren Commission was determined to find that it was a lone gunman who killed Kennedy. Given Oswald's history with the Soviet Union, once he was captured and killed, it immediately raised questions about whether he was a Russian agent who had been sent to kill the American president, particularly after the humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which Russia lost a lot of face. But determining that Oswald was a Russian agent would have led to nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Uh, you can't have one of your guys come and kill our president and not have retaliation. And the Warren Commission did not want nuclear war. So I think they were determined to find that Oswald was working alone. But the idea that they may have had a predetermined outcome to that question doesn't mean we can just dismiss the evidence they collected. They may have slanted, bent, or hidden evidence, as some have charged, but they didn't just make it all up out of thin air. Could someone else have faked all this evidence as part of an attempt to frame Oswald? Anything is hypothetically possible, so sure, some intelligence agency could have faked the note, the pictures, and the ballistic evidence, and then forced Marina to lie to the Warren Commission. However, we can't just assert those things. We need evidence to support them, and I don't have any such evidence, despite all the research I've done. So, to my mind, the evidence still points to Oswald's involvement. 
Further, the issue was revisited in the 1970s by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, or HSCA, which was also not a fan of the Warren Commission and its conclusions, and which famously disagreed with them. So the HSCA went into the Walker matter all over again. They called their own experts to examine the physical evidence and had Marina testify again, etc. And they came to the same conclusion, stating, The committee concluded that the evidence strongly suggested that Oswald attempted to murder General Walker and that he possessed a capacity for violence. Furthermore, the failed Walker shooting is a minor matter compared to the Kennedy assassination. The Warren Commission didn't need to conclude that Oswald shot at Walker to reach their conclusion that he was the lone gunman for Kennedy. If the Walker shooting had never happened, they would have reached the conclusion anyway, based on all the evidence they cited. So the Warren Commission didn't have a strong motive to fake evidence implicating Oswald, even if they could have. And neither would anyone else wanting to implicate Oswald in the JFK shooting. There was lots of evidence that he was an angry weirdo who was suitable for framing, and you didn't need to manufacture evidence regarding Walker. And the fact that the evidence stood up when it was reviewed by the House Select Committee more than a decade later lends additional credibility. So I conclude that Oswald most likely did try to shoot General Walker. And what did Walker himself think? He agreed, and he also was no fan of the Warren Commission. Uh, When it issued its report, Walker referred to the Warren Commission report as a farcical whitewash. But he agreed that Oswald was involved in the attempt on his life. If Oswald did try to kill Walker, why would he do this? Walker was a hardcore right-winger while Kennedy was liberal. They're at opposite ends of the political spectrum. They do seem very different from an American point of view, but not from a Marxist one. After its investigation, the House Select Committee remarked, President Kennedy and General Walker hardly shared a common political ideology. As seen in terms of American political thinking, Walker was a staunch conservative while the president was a liberal. It can be argued, however, that from a Marxist perspective, they could be regarded as occupying similar positions. Where Walker was stridently anti-communist, Kennedy was the leader of the free world in its fight against communism. Walker was a militarist. Kennedy had ordered the invasion of Cuba and had moved to within a hair's breadth of nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Consequently, it may be argued that Oswald could have seen Walker and Kennedy in the same ideological light. Also, when she testified before the House Committee in the 1970s, Marina said something about the night of the shooting that could shed light on Lee's motive. He was very pale, as I said, and he was out of breath, and I was asking, I mean, asked him to explain about the note that he left for me and asked him what happened. And he said he had just tried to shoot General Walker. I asked him who General Walker was. I mean, how dare you to go and claim somebody's life? And he said, well, what would you say if somebody got rid of Hitler at the right time? So if you don't know about General Walker, how can you speak up on his behalf? Because he told me that he wasn't just a minute. He said he was something equal to what he called him a fascist. That was his description. So Lee may have regarded Walker as a future Hitler, someone who might one day use his popularity and prestige to muscle his way into power in the United States. At the time, there were fears of a hardcore right-wing former military man gaining the presidency 
possibly even by force, like in the popular book and movie Seven Days in May, and I highly recommend the movie if you haven't seen it. Lee may thus have thought that he'd identified Walker as a future Hitler who needed to be stopped before he could ascend to power. You said the House committee concluded that Oswald was involved in the Walker shooting, but also that they concluded there was a conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination. How do those two things square? You'll recall that Walker's friend and the 14-year-old neighbor both said that they saw two suspicious men around the time of the event. Here's what the House committee said. Police located a 14-year-old boy in Walker's neighborhood who said that after hearing the shot, he climbed a fence and looked into an alley to the rear of Walker's home. The boy said he then saw some men speeding down the alley in a light green or light blue Ford, either a 1959 or 1960 model. He said he also saw another car, a 1958 Chevrolet, black with white down the side, in a church parking lot adjacent to Walker's house. The car door was open, and a man was bending over the back seat as though he was placing something on the floor of the car. On the night of the incident, police interviewed Robert Surrey, an aide to Walker. Surrey said that on Saturday, April 6, at about 9 p.m., he had seen two men sitting in a dark purple or brown 1963 Ford at the rear of Walker's house. Surrey also said the two men got out of the car and walked around the house. Surrey said he was suspicious and followed the car, noting that it carried no license plate. If it could be shown that Oswald had associates in the attempt on General Walker, they would be likely candidates as the Grassy Knoll gunmen. And that's quite a bit more detail than the Warren Commission included in its overall report, so kudos to the House Committee for providing more detail. The concreteness of the detail, the proximity to the shooting, which the boy heard because that was what caused him to climb the fence, and the suspiciousness of the car with no license plate, all that makes me think the possibility of more than one person being involved in the Walker shooting needs to be taken seriously. And if Oswald had associates in that, then they could have been involved in the Kennedy assassination too, including being on the grassy knoll where many eyewitnesses of the Kennedy assassination thought shots had been fired from. If Oswald was not a Russian agent but was trying to kill Walker and Kennedy on his own initiative for ideological reasons, what about the other man or men? Would they just have been American ideologues like Oswald? Well, possibly, but there's another possibility, which is that the Warren Commission was wrong about Oswald not being a Soviet agent. It's possible that he was, and that so were whoever else was involved. That's a possibility that's explored by former CIA director James Woolsey and former Romanian secret police two-star general Ion Mihai Pajepa in their recent book Operation Dragon, Inside the Kremlin's Secret War on America. Bear in mind who these two men are. Woolsey is a former CIA director, and Pajepa was the highest-ranking Soviet intelligence official ever to defect to the West. They have an interesting theory about what happened in the Kennedy assassination, which we'll talk about in the future. In fact, I've tried to contact Ambassador Woolsey to interview him for the show, but so far I haven't been able to make contact. Basically, they think Oswald was involved in the Kennedy assassination and that it was ordered by Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev only it got called off 
and Oswald went through with it anyway. So in a sense, it was a conspiracy and a Soviet-ordered hit, but by the end, Oswald was acting on his own, which is quite an interesting theory, and we'll examine the evidence for it in the future. What role did the two think the Walker shooting played in the overall plan? It was a test. If you're setting up an assassin, you don't want to put him on a big job like killing the President of the United States if he hasn't proven that he'll go through with things like this. Uh, You don't want him getting cold feet and backing out, much less going to the authorities and spilling the beans on you. You want to verify that he's thoroughly committed, and you even want him dirty to have blood on his hands before you put him on the big job. And so the Walker shooting was a test. Woolsey and Pacepa write, The fact that he fired only once supports the theory that this was primarily a test exercise for Oswald to prove that he would be able to escape clean from a real assassination in the U.S. And that's also something you'd want to test. Could the assassin get away? Because you don't want him getting caught and spilling the beans. And the fact the gunman only fired once is odd, because if you're really determined to kill someone, you're more likely to watch and see if they fall over dead with a head wound, and then take another shot if the bullet whizzes past their head and you don't see them fall over. So maybe this was just a take a single shot and then show us you can get away kind of test. Also, in late September and early October, just nine weeks before the Kennedy assassination, Oswald took a trip to Mexico City, where he visited both the Cuban and the Russian embassies. Woolsey and Pacepa write, In April, he had demonstrated to the KGB officers in Mexico how carefully and successfully he had planned to take a shot at General Edwin Walker on April 10th without leaving any telltale evidence, and he was certain he could do just as good a job against Kennedy. So they see Oswald as going to Mexico City to provide evidence to his handlers that he could pull off the Kennedy assassination, even though, according to Woolsey and Pacepa, they ended up calling it off. Do you see any additional evidence that supports their theory that the Walker shooting was a test? You'll recall the note that he left for Marina before the Walker shooting. He says some interesting things in it. For example, You can either throw out or give my clothing, etc. away. Do not keep these. However, I prefer that you hold on to my personal papers, military, civil, etc. Certain of my documents are in the small blue valise. He tells her to get rid of his clothing if he doesn't come back, but he wants her to keep his personal documents, some of which he tells her are in a small blue valise they had. Why would he want her to keep his papers if he didn't care about his other belongings? One possibility is that, like a lot of ideologues who take dramatic actions, he thought he was going to be a hero, and so he wanted his papers available to document his heroic legacy. The question is, who would he be a hero to? And that's where another interesting thing he said comes in. You'll recall that he said for Marina to contact the Russian embassy because he thought they could help her. And that's only natural, as it's the job of embassies to help their nationals when they're in trouble, so the Russian embassy could be expected to help out Marina as a Russian national. But that wasn't all Lee said. Instead, He specifically said to tell the Russian embassy what happened to me and to include any newspaper clippings about him. 
Let's listen to that part again. Send the information as to what has happened to me to the embassy and include newspaper clippings, should there be anything about me in the newspapers. I believe that the embassy will come quickly to your assistance on learning everything. So the first thing he tells her here is to contact the Russian embassy and let them know what happened to him, including sending them any newspaper stories about him. That's suggestive of the idea that someone at the embassy may have been expecting news about him, like he was on a mission for them. He then says that they will quickly come to your assistance on learning everything, which could suggest that there's a prearranged deal to take care of Marina if something goes wrong with the mission, or at least that they would feel indebted to Lee and thus have a moral obligation to help Marina. Of course, it doesn't prove that this is what was going on. Lee could have simply been planning a reckless act, and if something went wrong, he wanted her to contact the embassy and tell them what happened to him in order to prove that she was now alone and stranded in America so that they'd help her. But the text is consistent with both readings, and for an egomaniac like Oswald, the fact he mentions telling the embassy first and to send them newspaper clippings is certainly suggestive that he's wanting to take credit for what he did and expects them to appreciate it. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this assassination attempt against General Walker? I think the evidence indicates that Lee Harvey Oswald did attempt to kill General Edwin Walker. I think it's quite possible that he had at least one accomplice in this effort. I think it's also possible that this was a test to prove himself to Soviet higher-ups. But I don't have proof of those things, and the Kennedy assassination is so complex that I need to do more research and thinking about it all. So. Stay tuned. And Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have links to David Talbot's book, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. Also, James Woolsey and Ian Pachepa's book, Operation Dragon, The Warren Commission Report, Nick Redfern's article on the assassination attempt. Also, information about Lee Harvey Oswald, General Edwin Walker, Oswald the Rabbit, the cartoon character. Also, information about the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, as well as a 1961 article from Time Magazine on General Walker, Vincent P. Gwynn's testimony before the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and Marina Oswald Porter's testimony before the HSCA. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is Thanksgiving, so we'll be doing a Weird Questions episode for the holidays. We'll be talking about whether you would die if you touched the Virgin Mary, lucid dreams, would aliens worship Christ, whether there could have been life in space after the Big Bang, and much more. Excellent. So we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. What are your theories about Lee Harvey Oswald and the assassination attempt on Major General Walker? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a thank you to Dom's wife, Melanie, for her voice work. 
And also, special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. They've been a big help to Mysterious World, and you can see their work by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. If you have need of video editing and animation, be sure to contact them. And also, while you're at YouTube, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you'll always get a notification whenever I release a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. Be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 233. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Middle-Earth. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Middle-Earth.